1: This is
2: Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI members reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon; Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It's It's all about time, 20 years since we last saw Euro-dollar parity, six months of a ground war in Europe, and counting down less than 30 days to the next Fed decision. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week, I'm David Weston. This week, contributors Larry Summers of Harvard on his reaction to Chair Jay Powell's Jackson Hole remarks.
3: Look, I think he did
2: what he needed uh, to do and former IBM CEO Sam Palmisano on how to make the Chips and Science Act live up to its name. You need to get the bureaucracy
4: out of the way.
2: This is a week to mark anniversaries and look forward to deadlines, starting with Dr. Anthony Fauci's decision to step away from his NIAID responsibilities after serving seven presidents over 54 years.
3: I tried, as you know, my very best to have
2: the facts and the science guide us. A very different anniversary came with the euro falling below parity with U.S. dollar for the first time in 20 years, driven in part by the looming energy crisis and prospects for the recession that it may cause. Something Ian Shepherdson of Pantheon Macroeconomics thinks is already here. Europe's
5: in recession now already. I mean that, that's
2: that's pretty obvious now. We see that lasting for a while. We also passed the six-month anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine as Putin's forces struck a train station in the east part of the country on the 31st anniversary of ukrainians independence from russia a russia that is trying to take it back That's an irony not lost on Amanda Sloat of the National Security
5: Council. It's a sobering reminder that just as the Ukrainian people had to fight to defend themselves and get their independence uh, 31 years ago, they are unfortunately in a similar position today.
2: But it was also a week for celebration, at least for those saddled with student loan debt, with President Biden fulfilling his promise to give them some relief. I made a commitment that would provide student debt relief. And I'm honoring that commitment today we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. But for Global Wall Street, there was really only one story this week, despite all the commemoration, and it came from Jackson Hole, and it came from Chair Jay Powell, as markets eagerly sought answers to their questions about U.S. monetary policy, coming less than three weeks from when the FOMC meets again, and the chair stepped up to the podium and basically said, we'd all have to wait.
6: Our decision at this September meeting will depend on the totality of the incoming data and the evolving outlook.
2: But as much as the Fed says it will pay attention to the data, the markets, the markets got the message that they shouldn't expect any relief from tightening anytime soon, as the S&P 500 was down just over 4% for the week, and over three of that came on Friday alone in response to Chair Powell. The Nasdaq fared even worse, down 4.4%, and again, almost four of that came on Friday alone. The bond market was a bit more complicated, with the yield on the 10-year up to just over 3%, barely up for the week, but the yield on the two-year reacted much more to the Fed News, ending the week at 3.4. That's up 16 basis points for the week. To help us understand what the markets are trying to tell us, we welcome now Peter Kraus. He's founder, chairman, and CEO of Aperture Investors and Lizanne Saunders, chief investment strategist for Charles Schwab. So, Lizanne, give us your take on what happened here. If the markets were expecting more of the same, they sure didn't react that way.
5: Well, I think you know the narrative around the basis for the rally that started uh, in mid-June. Some of it had to do with the uh, the peak in the ten-year at around three and a half percent. But this narrative that was created around the notion of a Fed pivot, uh, we never bought into that narrative. I think a pause is something we should talk about at some point, as did Powell today. But a pivot to aggressive rate cuts as early as the beginning of next year, that the only reason the Fed would have the green light to do that would be a significant 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 deterioration in the labor market from here and or a much more significant deterioration in the economy. And, And for now, we haven't seen that. So it wasn't a surprise to see him really forcefully push back against the, the the idea of a pivot, that once they get to whatever the sort of final hike is, they're going to stay there for a while, and I think the market had trouble digesting that.
2: So, so Peter, if you look at the markets, they haven't entirely given up on that cut next year. They backed off of it some after the power marks, but not at, well, 100%. Were you surprised at the market reaction?
6: No, I, I wasn't. I, I was a little surprised with August's uh, gains. I mean, it was really sort of a melt-up. It sort of persistently was a risk-on type of market. And as Lizanne said, there really wasn't any reason to believe that Powell was going to somehow give some credence to the idea that the Fed was about to reduce rates in the next six months. So I think the market sort of just realized that it was rising at a level that was not sustainable given where interest rates are likely to go. And we haven't really seen enough economic weakness to signal that rates are going to modify. So the market reacted to that, and I suspect it may follow through with more of a reaction until we get into September and there's real volume and real players in the marketplace. And right now we're still in a very, very thinly traded market.
2: Uh, Peter, if the, if the Fed was trying to get out of the business of really affecting the markets, it's not succeeding very much. I mean, obviously, the central banks around the world really got involved a lot, starting with the great financial crisis. And some people thought they were trying to pull out of it, including with the balance sheet rundown. But right now, how much of this is just driven by the central banks themselves, Peter?
6: Well, we have not seen a return to fundamental investing. We're still in markets that are captivated by headline risks and headline commentary, whether it's the Fed, or whether it's the Russia-Ukraine war, or whether it's China's COVID policies, uh, we're still being driven by headlines and not enough fundamental analysis. I suspect that we're going to come to a market where fundamental analysis will have much more of an impact on what investors actually invest in, but we're going to have to get to some level of the bottom here And I I don't think the market's quite there yet, but it's forming a bottom.
2: Okay, Lizanne Saunders and Peter Krause will be staying with us as we turn to how investors might make some sense of this uncertain time. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on
0: Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this.
7: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. the next space race, the push for public funding for semiconductors, starting with President Xi's program described by former U.S. Ambassador to China, Max Baucus. They're helping in pursuing their China 2025 plan where China will focus on technologies of the future to enhance their economy. And followed by Europe's own version described by Margaret Vesteyer of the European Commission.
1: What I have been impressed with is that sort of the first Uh, important project of common European interest that we have on semiconductors. Here uh, about 2 billion of public support crowded in 6.5 billion of private investment.
2: Now the United States has its own version the Chips and Science Act, just signed into law by President Biden. The United States must lead the world in the production of these advanced chips. This law will do exactly that. And as in Europe, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo predicts the public funds will prime the pump for much more to come from the private sector.
5: As big as 52 billion is, it is a drop in the bucket, a very big drop in the bucket towards what this economy needs
2: all of which leaves us to focus on how fast the money can get out the government door, whether it will let loose the private sector, and whether it all will be spent wisely.
7: Go looking for really talented, experienced people in a a wide range of
4: ages uh, who understand these technologies and get them on board, either as employees or advisors, to help guide the process of making these investments as high potential and productive
0: as they can be.
2: And to help us understand this world of global competition in technology, particularly the role governments might play in it, welcome to somebody who spent a good part of his career in the middle of that competition. He's Sam Palmisano, the former IBM CEO and chairman, now he's the chairman of the Center for Global Enterprise. So, welcome back, great to have you on Wall Street Week, Sam. Uh, as I say, this is not the first time we've had governments involved in tech, uh, by any means. Going back to media in Japan, DARPA, the Defense Department. Uh, what have we learned from that? What should we have learned from those experiences?
4: Well, David, I think it's, it's a great analogy that you draw, and you seem to be historian of our industry. I actually was living in Japan during the memory wars. I was living in Tokyo at the time working in IBM Japan. Now, today things have changed, I mean, clearly because it's not Japan who was part of the worldwide economic and governance systems it's China and China as you know uh, is fast-growing economy investing trillions of dollars in technology Uh, they want to lead the West they want to be the worldwide leader in, in semiconductors and microelectronics and the majority of our capacity is Asia and it's not exactly a stable part of the world so it's quite different so it's more than just government involvement and adding stimulus to and get investment in these key critical areas. You have a, they have the geopolitics at play. So it's very complicated, much more so than it was in the past.
2: But it doesn't always work, does it? I mean, I think a lot of people think that the media experiment over in Japan actually ultimately was not successful. Japan is not a dominant player in semiconductors today.
4: That's correct. I mean, I would argue that the execution by government then was very poor. I was I used to meet with Meaty uh, and they were stronger in electronics and they still are strong in manufacturing electronics. But to fill in what was required from the industry's perspective, you also had to have software capability and they were weak. So many times I think the government doesn't understand what's required to actually uh, not just invest but to lead and then the discipline that's required to
2: execute these things with precision. So, Sam, as you suggest, I mean, China really has changed the game, I think, in technology in all sorts of ways. And given its authoritarian aspect, which means it can do pretty much whatever it wants to do, as well as the massive amounts of money involved, does it make it almost essential that the United States, and for that matter, Europe also, some way step up to the bar?
4: Uh, I think it's key. Now, I know many of my colleagues in the private sector will find that that's strange for somebody that ran IBM to say those things, but this transition is very, very expensive, and I don't think it's a, you can you could have a company, regardless of how successful they are, Intel, AMD, ASML, in Europe, etc., do this on their own. They're taking on a sovereign nation, and when you're and when you're taking on a sovereign nation, it's not like competing in your industry space. So there is a role for government. Now the question question is, what is the role for government? And I think we all know, we've all learned that government picking winners and losers, even if you're a authoritarian government like China, who can act quickly, doesn't always work uh, for lots of different reasons. But I think you need to have this partnership and not have the government pick and choose who the political winners or losers happen to be based upon votes per state and all the things that they consider beyond just what it takes to make this business successful and what it takes
2: to lead in technology in the world. Sam, it's always a pleasure to have you with us on Wall Street Week. Thank you so much That's Sam Palmasama. He is the chairman of the Center for Global Enterprise. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from
0: Bloomberg Radio. Call it
2: the next space race, the push for public funding for semiconductors, starting with President Xi's program described by former U.S. Ambassador to China, Max Baucus. They're hell-bent in pursuing their China 2025 plan, where China will focus on technologies of the future to enhance their economy. And followed by Europe's own version, described by Margaret Vestager of the European Commission.
1: What I have been impressed with is that sort of the first uh, important project of common European interest that we have on semiconductors. Here, uh, about $2 billion of public support, crowded in $6.5 billion of private investment.
2: Now, the United States has its own version. The Chips and Science Act, just signed into law by President Biden. The United States must lead the world in the production of these advanced chips. This law will do exactly that. And as in Europe, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo predicts the public funds will prime the pump for much more to come from the private sector.
5: As big as 52 billion is, it is a drop in the bucket, a very big drop in the bucket towards what this economy needs.
2: All of which leaves us to focus on how fast the money can get out the government door, whether it will let loose the private sector, and whether it all will be spent wisely.
7: Go looking for really talented, experienced people in a a wide range of
4: ages uh, who understand these technologies and get them on board, either as employees or advisors, to help guide the process of making these investments as high potential and productive
0: as they can be.
2: And to help us understand this world of global te- competition in technology, and technology, particularly the role governments might play in it, welcome to somebody who spent a good part of his career in the middle of that competition. He's Sam Palmisano, the former IBM CEO and chairman. Now he's the chairman of the Center for Global enterprise. So welcome back. Great to have you on Wall Street Week, Sam. Uh, as I say, this is not the first time we've had governments involved in tech uh, by any means. Going back to media in Japan, DARPA, the Defense Department, uh, what have we learned from that? What should we have learned from those experiences?
4: Well, Dave, I think it's, it's a great analogy that you're drawing. you draw. You seem to be a historian of our industry. I actually was living in Japan during the memory wars. I was living in Tokyo at the time working at IBM Japan. Now, today things have changed, I mean, clearly because it's not Japan, who was part of the worldwide economic and governance systems? It's China, and China, as you know, uh, is fast-growing economy, investing trillions of dollars in technology. Uh, they want to lead the West. They want to be the, the worldwide leader in, in semiconductors and the microelectronics. And the majority of our capacity is Asia, and it's not exactly a stable part of the world. So it's quite different. So it's more than just government involvement and adding stimulus to and get investment in these key critical areas. You have a, they have the geopolitics at play. So it's very complicated, much more so than it was in the past.
2: But it doesn't always work, does it? I mean, I think a lot of people think that the media experiment over in Japan actually ultimately was not successful. Japan is not a dominant player in semiconductors today.
4: That's correct. I mean, I would argue that the execution by government then was very poor. I was I used to meet with Meaty, uh, and they were stronger in electronics, and they still are strong in manufacturing electronics. But to fill in what was required from the industry's perspective, you also had to have software capability, and they were weak. So many times, I think the government doesn't understand what's required to actually... Uh, not just invest but to lead and then the discipline that's required to execute these things with precision.
2: So Sam, as you suggest, I mean China really has changed the game, I think, in technology uh, in all sorts of ways, and and given its authoritarian aspect, which means it can do pretty much whatever it wants to do, uh, as well as the massive amounts of money involved, does it make it almost essential that the United States, and for that matter, Europe also, some way, step up to the bar.
4: I think it's key. Now, I know many of my colleagues in the private sector will find that that's strange for somebody that ran IBM to say those things. But this transition is very, very expensive, and I don't think it's a, you can you could have a company, regardless of how successful they are, Intel, AMD, ASML, in Europe, etc., do this on their own. They're taking on a sovereign nation, and when, you're, and when you're taking on a sovereign nation, it's not like competing in your industry space. So there is a the role for government. Now the question is, what is the role for government? And I think we all know, we've all learned that government picking winners and losers, even if you're an authoritarian government like China, you can act quickly, doesn't always work uh, for lots of different reasons. But I think you need to have this partnership and not have the government pick and choose who the political winners or losers happen to be based upon votes per state and all the things that they consider beyond just what it takes to make this business successful and what it
2: takes to lead in technology in the world. Sam, it's always a pleasure to have you with us on Wall Street Week. Thank you so much. That's Sam Palmasama. He is the chairman of the Center for Global Enterprise. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week, I'm David Weston. We're joined once again by our special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He is Dr. Larry Summers of Harvard. So Larry, we heard from Jay Powell. We've heard from him the last three years at Jackson Hole. You weren't too pleased when he had his framework a couple of years ago. You we weren't too pleased about his transitory talk. Did you feel a little better this year?
3: Look, I think he did what he needed uh, to do. It was clear that inflation is the overwhelming priority. It was clear, despite some earlier confused talk about neutral, that he was under no illusion that monetary policy was in an appropriate place right now. It was clear that whatever the academic arguments about demand shocks versus supply shocks uh, said. The Fed couldn't accept uh, continuing high inflation and had to act until it was clear uh, that that was uh, going away. The remarks were very concise. There wasn't a lot of uh, more academic uh, discussion but there was a statement of uh, being uh, resolute. Uh, So I think that's just right. So I think the Fed is positioned uh, as well as it can be, given the credibility losses and mistakes that there have been. with these remarks to manage things going forward.
2: The chair never used the word recession. At the same time, he did talk about below trend growth for an extended period of time, also elevated interest rates for a good time to come. Is he really pointing to a recession? Is he between the lines saying, get ready for it?
3: I think he also had a reference to the fact that uh, there was going to be pain. He wasn't predicting recession, and after all, uh, even someone who's quite pessimistic about the situation, like me, is saying that there's a 75 percent chance of recession in the next two years, but he was clearly showing an awareness of the possibility. Uh, indeed, possibly even the likelihood of recession. And I think that was very important because saying you're against inflation when there's no price to to resisting uh, inflation or bringing down inflation isn't a consequential statement. Today, he prioritized inflation, making clear that he recognized that that prioritization would have short-term adverse consequences that wouldn't be easy, but that by bringing down inflation, ultimately, there were gonna be more jobs with higher real wages for more people. And that's after all what economic policy uh, is all about. It was a big change from the Jay Powell of a couple of years ago, who was speaking about the importance of maximizing employment without an awareness of the issues of sustainability um, and long-run economic uh, performance. So I was uh, quite pleased with uh, these remarks.
2: So let's go over to Europe for a moment because they have their own problems over there. The ECB is indicating further tightening perhaps. At the same time, they're in for what looks like a substantial energy supply shock, particularly as we get into the winter. Are we properly appraising what is going on in Europe and how bad it could be?
3: Christine Lagarde's got a much harder job right now than uh, Jay Powell does. She's got the dilemmas of uh, inflation. But she's got a truly massive supply shock with uh, what's happened there with natural gas and electricity prices. She has a set of challenges of monetary union, problematic politics in in Italy, very high debts in uh, the European uh periphery. So they've got a very, very difficult set of balances. And they also have the challenge of a credible currency as the euro moves uh, to and through uh, parity uh, with uh, the dollar. So I think it's going to be a very difficult road for uh, them to uh, walk uh, in Europe. Uh, My suspicion would be that uh, they're going to have to raise rates more than is currently priced in, but that that's going to come at a time when there's very substantial recessionary forces uh, in Europe. And I'm concerned about what that's going to mean for intra-European politics. And I'm also concerned ultimately, and what I think is probably most important, is how it affects Europe's uh, fortitude in this very difficult world we have with a revanchist Russia and an aggressive China.
2: Larry, back in the United States, one big development this week was President Biden announcing his plan for relief, at least partial relief, from student debt loads. We heard Jason Furman, somebody you know well, respect. I respect him as well. He had some tweets that were, I think, among other things, said this was pouring gasoline on an inflation fire. What did you make of that policy change by the administration?
3: I did not support large-scale student uh, debt relief because I thought it was using federal resources to make transfers, hundreds of billions of dollars, and I would have liked those resources put to better use, helping people who were poorer, who were more in need, and who would use the money to invest more in the future of the economy. I think that it does add to demand, which does increase inflationary pressures. But that's something that the Fed should uh, be able to uh, offset, Uh, but it will mean more need For the Fed uh, to move uh, rates, and I think it needs to be recognized uh, that this is something that's meaningful relative to all the other things uh, that are uh, that are that are going on. It's it's not the policy I would have preferred, but if this is our biggest mistake uh, we will be doing uh, very well. And, you know, this is several hundred billion dollars over 10 years. What we did in 2021 was several trillion dollars over one year so we just need to keep perspective on uh the scale of this Uh,
2: larry you have helped set economic policy both at the treasury and at the white house was this the economists talking or is it the politicians talking and some people as you know are starting to say uh serious economists are not having enough of a say in this white house
3: look i'm somebody who always uh believes that uh you can't go wrong uh, listening uh, more to, more to uh, economics. I think in response to many of the frustrations, going back to the uh, financial crisis, there has been some movement away from relying on uh, economists' advice. I think over time that will tend to lead to mistakes
2: Thank you so much, Larry, for being with us once again. That's our special contributor on Wall Street. That's Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Workers of the world unite. That was the rallying cry of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in their Communist Manifesto of 1848. And their followers took a pretty good run at it, but with the Soviet Union and all. And at the same time, organized labor grew in Europe and in Britain and in the United States. Even as late as 1979, the noble quest of organized labor was celebrated in an Academy Award for Sally Field, leading a sit down as Norma Ray. <laughs> But that was then and now is different as Cornell's Alexander Colvin explains with labor unions losing a fair amount of clout in the United States. We had you know, over 20% of workers represented uh, in America by unions. Today uh, it's it's below 11% and down to around 6% of the private sector, so unions are much weaker. The question is whether the tide may be turning once again as job markets have tightened and big employers like Amazon are facing new organizing attempts, although CEOs like Andy Jackson Insists unions are not the answer.
7: We happen to think they're better off without a union for a number of reasons, um, including the fact that you know it's it's much harder uh, when you have a union to have a direct relationship with your manager and to get things done quickly.
2: With the growing push by unions and high inflation and economic uncertainty comes the prospect, of course, of strikes. Whether it's in West
7: Coast ports in the United States, it's obviously, uh, anytime you have a negotiation it's like the ports, uh, whether it's on the West or East Coast, but in this case on the West Coast, we want to keep a close eye because we know the impacts that, that if if it doesn't go well, what what'll happen?
2: Or at Felixstowe, Britain's largest port, which went on strike just this week.
1: This is a significant moment in the UK's summer of strike. We're on day two. It's about 2,000 workers who are disputing their pay. Merck has already had to re three vessels.
2: But it's one thing for stevedores or warehouse workers to stand up to management. You know things are getting truly rough when it's the lawyers who decide to strike, as British barristers did just this week.
1: Fight is what we train for, fight is what we do.
2: Unhappy with the way their fees are lagging behind runaway inflation, putting at risk a classic source of Western entertainment, the sort of thing depicted in witness for the prosecution
3: question is, Frau Helm, were you
4: lying then? Are you lying now? Or are you not in fact a chronic and habitual liar?
2: Then again, even as a lawyer, I have to ask myself, if all the lawyers decide not to work, is that an economic headwind or is it a tailwind? That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. See you next week.